glory forever. Amen. And since this is Communion Sunday, we do not have our psalm of preparation, so I would encourage you to join me now in taking your copy of God's Word, and we'll turn together to our passage for this morning, and we'll find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 13, or sorry, verses 17 uh, through 34. As we've been doing for the past several weeks, as we turn to this portion of God's word, I want us to remind ourselves, I want us to be reminded of what we believe about God's word. And this morning we want to remember we believe that it is his word, which means there is no error in it, and it's truth on all that it teaches. So when we read these passages, we can believe what it teaches us, because this isn't just a human authorship. God did use human authors. This is his divine word. These men were, were chosen and guided by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to record God's word. So we turn to it with all confidence this morning that we are hearing from God himself. But as you notice, if you've been with us for, for any time now, that we are not turning back to the book of Acts. We have been in our study of the book of Acts since early February. But we've been away over the past couple of weeks to hear sermons first from Dr. Jeremiah Pitts, who's the Vice Chancellor of African Bible University in Uganda, and then from the Reverend Dr. Brian Bolt from First Pres in Columbia. So y'all had two Sundays with actual doctors in the pulpit, so now you expect a regular reverend, no doctor here, but good to, good to hear from them. But we will return to our study of Acts next Sunday. And we're going to be looking at Stephen's speech in chapter 7. It's a long speech. It's a long portion of scripture. It is 53 verses long. And it's dense. There's a lot there. Uh, but it's good. So I want to encourage you to take some time this week to read through it. Uh, if you're anything like me, it's going to take you two, three, four times to, to read through it to start to kind of wrap your head around it. Uh, so please take time during this week. Don't just show up next Sunday. Take time during this week to, to look over Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, and so we can all be prepared for our time in his word next week. But this morning, we are prepared to come to the Lord's table for supper he instituted for his people. Uh, we come to a passage that's familiar to us here at Bethel. It's probably familiar to, to many Christians because it's a passage that's normally read uh, before Christians come together before this means of grace. In our Reformed Presbyterian tradition, we call this fencing the table, meaning that this table is not an open table. This meal is for Christians, for those who profess and believe that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. And as you'll see here in a few moments, it's, it's, it's open to them, to us, but it's closed to non-believers. And it kind of leads to the question, why would a non-believer want to take of this sacrament? Why would they want to take of the meal of the one they don't believe in. But Paul offers some uh, counsel and some wisdom here as well, that if we come before this meal, we take of this meal in an unworthy manner, we are inviting the judgment of God upon us. So for us as believers, it's, it's a reminder that this isn't just a tradition. This isn't something we just do the, the first Sunday of the even months. This is a serious meal. Instituted by Jesus Christ on the night he was betrayed, the night before he was crucified. A meal in which we come together as God's people to spiritually feast upon the grace of Jesus Christ. 
This isn't tradition. This isn't something just to check off. This is the meal of the Lord. So we're going to read through this passage. And we're really going to focus on one part here, a part of Paul's pastoral counsel and wisdom. So with that being said, let me pray for our time here together in God's word. Uh, Father, we have already talked at some length about what we believe about uh, your word. It is being your word, being without error and full of truthfulness. We've also talked some about what we believe this passage teaches us. We pray for your spirit to continue to be here with us and to guide us in the reading of your word and the hearing of it and the understanding of it. Lord, help me be your faithful messenger. Help your people here this morning be your faithful disciples who listen and by the Spirit, their minds and hearts are quickened. And we are all encouraged in our faith, convicted of our sins, and committed more and more to loving you and following you. Work in us this way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning of verse 17, and we will stand together now for the reading of God's word. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, you come together as a church, or when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you this? No, no, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. So when you come together, it will not be for judgment. But the other things, I will give directions when I come. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. We have probably gone to our doctor at some point and have heard our doctor advise to us, you need a physical. And our doctors tell us it's good to have a physical on usually on a yearly basis. When the doctor tells you it's time for your physical, what do you do? Well, you set up your appointments, you show up on time, so that you can sit in the waiting room for a long time, and then you call back to the examination room. And you sit on the table with that crinkly paper, and either the doctor or one of his staff comes in and they begin to perform the physical. And they give you the once over, right from, from head to toe. 
look at your eyes, your ears, your nose, your, your throat. They test your heart and test your blood. They perform a variety of tests to see how your body is functioning. And in a bit, if everything checks out, the doctor gives you a clean bill of health and you can get off the table and go home and continue on with your day. But there's something wrong. There's something abnormal. And your doctor catches it. He advises you to go get it checked out. Because your doctor, hopefully along with yourself, wants you to be help wants you to be healthy, to be good, strong, and healthy. So we understand that having a physical is, is for our good. It's good to go to a physical to be checked out. It's good to have your overall health checked out. It's, it's all well worth doing. It's good to be examined by your doctor. We find, as we come to our passage this morning, that Paul here, the Apostle Paul, is acting like a doctor, albeit a spiritual doctor. And what he's doing in this passage is he's recommending to us a a physical, but this is a a spiritual physical. As a spiritual physical, we are to perform ourselves, this this spiritual self-exam. And he says, this is especially important to do it before you take the Lord's Supper. For those of us who, who grew up playing sports, and we had children playing sports, you know, before they can play, what do you have to do? You have to take your child to get a, a physical. It's good for them, it's important for them to have that physical before they go and play the sport. And Paul is saying here, it is good and important for you to have this spiritual exam, this spiritual self-exam physical, before you come before the Lord's Supper. Now Paul is advising this in the context of him writing this pastoral letter to the church in Corinth. And if you're familiar with this book, uh, if you've read the chapters before this, do you know that the church in Corinth is having some rather significant spiritual issues? They're a young church. And Paul planted them, and when he went out to plant other churches, some rather significant spiritual issues began to take place in the church in Corinth. As he says here, one of his issues is that they would gather on the Lord's Day to take communion, and this half of the church would be passed out drunk from drinking all the wine. And this half of the church would be taking all the bread and eating, and, and eating it up and not sharing it with anybody else. And so if we were able to go back in time and, and, and go to worship one Sunday with the church in, in Corinth, our minds would probably be blown because when it came time for communion, they were acting more like a, a gathering of depraved gluttons than serious committed Christians. And Paul says this isn't good. Drunkenness is a sin. Especially drunkenness at the table is a sin. Gluttony is a sin. Especially gluttony at the table is a sin. So Paul, as their pastor, as their spiritual doctor, advises them this in verse 28. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we can imagine the Church of Corinth is coming to Paul's examination room. They sit at the examining table. The crinkly paper is there. And Paul comes in and he says, You are not well. You have issues. And one of the best things that you can do, so you can rightly come before this means of grace, this means that Jesus, the one whose grace has given to us, is for you to have a spiritual, physical, a spiritual self-examination 
of, of, their, of their mind and heart. And this is a wisdom that extends to us. Even this morning. Examine yourself. Don't just come running to the elements and, and throwing it down so you can get out of here quickly. Examine yourself so that you can discern whether you're ready and able to partake of this meal of grace. What's that mean? What's it mean to examine yourself in this spiritual sense? We understand the logistics of a physical Sunday appointment going there. We understand those logistics, but how do we do this spiritually? How do we give ourselves a spiritual physical? Well, we're going to think of this in a directional sense. We look in so we can look up. We spiritually examine ourselves first by looking inwards, so then we are enabled to rightly look upwards. John Calvin, who is one of our favorite theologians and spiritual doctors, begins his seminal work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, with this statement. Without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. But as these are connected by many times, it is not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. So here's John Calvin wanting to explain the Christian faith. And one of the first things he, be, he begins with is to teach and remind that knowledge of self leads to knowledge of God. And that knowledge of God leads to knowledge of self. So it's this self-perpetrating cycle of knowledge. One will always lead to the other. Knowledge of self to knowledge of God, knowledge of God to knowledge of self. But I think what we find here in the context of Paul's counsel in our passage is our spiritual self-exam is to begin by looking inwards, looking at ourselves, to diagnose, uh, to diagnose our spiritual mind and heart. So when we do that, when we look inward, what do we see? What do we see with our spiritual mind and heart? Well, here's a wonderful thing. The great physician has already given us our diagnosis in his word. He tells us about ourselves. Surely I was conceived in sin. I was born dead in my sins and trespasses. I was once an enemy of God. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God and my inner, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's our diagnosis. When we look inward, that's what we see in our minds and hearts. It shows a sinner. It shows, like Paul, that we are the chief of sinners. An honest self-examination will show a heart that will still lust at the very sins that condemn us to hell. It will show us a mind that knows better, but, but like a, a pitiful addict will keep running at those very things that threaten to destroy us. It shows a liar. It shows a hypocrite. It shows someone who will confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, yet there are parts of our lives, maybe even many parts, that shows more obedience to Satan and to hell. This true self-examination of ourselves, 
Myself, yourself will show that we are truly the chief of sinners. So when we look in that spiritual mirror, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the worst of them all? We point back at ourselves. It's not a pretty look. It's not a pleasant self-examination. It isn't fun. But Paul says, in spite of that, it's, it's necessary. Look again at how he bookends his counsel. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. When we, Paul tells us, when we come to his table without spiritual self-examination, and we run the risk of eating in an unworthy manner against Jesus, leading to the risk of God's judgment on us. We take what should be a spiritual feast of grace given to us by the one who is grace, and then when we don't self-examine it, we distort it and we twist it. Maybe we're not getting drunk off of the grape juice. That would be something, wouldn't it? Maybe there's not enough bread there to be gluttons on. But we can still abuse this table if we don't have self-examination. Because by looking inward, then as Christians, our gaze will be drawn upward. By looking inward to see how sinful we really are, then our gaze is drawn up to our Lord and Savior. You see, this table, this meal, this means of grace, isn't meant just to be a spotlight on our sins. It's meant to be a spotlight on the one who knows all this about you. That you were conceived in sin. You were born in your sin of the trespasses. That you were his enemy. You are the chief of sinners. He knows all this about you. And yet still loves you. And still saves you. Still walks with you as your friend. Has gone ahead of you to prepare a place for you. A place of eternity with him in heaven. You see, this table is about Jesus and his great sacrificial love for, for you and me. As we told the children this morning, the very elements are meant to draw our attention to the cross. His body broken on the cross, his blood spilt on the cross because it was on the cross that he was there as the perfect and final sacrificial lamb for our sins. And so we, we can think of his body being weighed down, not just by the physical torment, but even more so by the spiritual torment as, as the Father poured out his cup of wrath upon him, taking on our just punishment for our sins. The body broken, the, be, the bread broken. And then we can think of his, his blood flowing from all the wounds on his body, from his, from his brow down to his, to his hands, down to his feet, to his side. The perfect blood that covers all of our sins, making us white as snow, treating us as if we had never sinned. His blood spilt, the cup poured. And this table demands of us that we first look inwards, so then our gaze will be drawn upwards. Like the Israelites looking up to Moses as he held his arms up in battle. And so Paul tells us that self-examination will lead from bad news to the cure. I am a sinner, and Jesus died for my sins. I am a redeemed sinner, and I have the confidence that Jesus has saved me, loves me, and will continue to forgive me when I go to him for forgiveness. 
John Newton, who, who many of us know from his hymn, Amazing Grace, as he lay on his deathbed, said this, I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. That is self-examination at its best. We look inward to understand more and more how great of a sinner you and I really are. So then we may look upward and remember and be in awe that Christ is a great Savior. His body broken, his blood spilt, because we are great sinners and he is a great Savior. In just a few moments, we're going to come together before this table. And worthiness to come to this table isn't perfection. This, sec- this, this table is for sinners who have taken time to look inward, to look upward, who have repented of their sins and turned to Christ for salvation. We think a question, eight, a question and answer number 81 of Heidelberg Catechism teaches that those who may freely come to the table are those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins because they've looked inwards. But when they looked upwards, they trust that they are pardoned in Christ and yearn for the strength that he provides by his spirit in his supper. This worthiness, again, going back to John Calvin, consists chiefly in faith, which reposes all things in Christ, but nothing in ourselves. So our Father welcomes all to his table who have put their trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. So as we prepare to come into this table, let's use this remaining time to look inward to see how great of a sinner we really are. So we may then look upward to see how great of a Savior Jesus Christ really is. So we may worthily take of his body and of his blood and be encouraged and grown in our faith and obedience to him. Let's pray together.